Welcome to a new space dedicated to biculturalism, a place to gather conversations, resources, and perspectives for everyone who wants to delve into the world of dual identity. I'm Natanya Hoffman, and you're listening to The Extra Half. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 19. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that you can find us at patreon.com slash the extra half, or send us an email at the extra half at gmail.com if you'd like to support our work. This week's guest is Nina De Felice, who is French and Mauritian. Nina is a pianist, and in addition to her performing career, she's the co-founder of the Festival Contrepoint Croisé in France, and of An Artist's Blog, a new platform which gathers writing and thoughts about music. Nina has studied and lived in France, Switzerland, Germany, and the Czech Republic, and additionally holds bachelor's and master's degrees in mathematics. I'd like to apologize for the audio quality of today's episode. We had a few technical difficulties this time. Nevertheless, I hope you enjoy the content. It was a really great conversation. Hi, Nina. Hi, Natanya. When people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually tell people? So I usually tell people I'm from Geneva in Switzerland because it is the city where I was born and it is the city where I grew up basically. And I feel like it is my city, like it's the only city where I can call home basically. But then the, the usual answer I'm getting is you don't look very Swiss um, because I have like dark hair and dark eyes and dark eyebrows. So I have to explain a little bit further. And so what I'm usually telling people is my dad is basically French, a bit Swiss, but basically French. And my mom is coming from Mauritius. And usually I'm getting either, oh, People don't know where Mauritius is, so I have to explain to them it's a small island next to Madagascar and everything. Or they're telling me like, oh, this is so cool, it's dream island. I want I want to go there. Can you take me there? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> have you ever taken anyone there? No, actually, no, not yet, because I'm always like going with my family or with my mom, at least. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking any friends, but I have dozens of friends who want to go. <laughs> nice. And which languages did you speak growing up at home? And was that different between your parents, with your parents and with your sister? So I grew up speaking actually only French within my family to both my parents and my sister because my mom never like spoke to us in Creole, which is her, her mother tongue. But she somehow never wanted us to speak. But we've learned anyway, me and my sister, because we heard her um, speaking to her family, to my aunts and uncles and my grandmother. So we ended up learning, basically. But at, at home, we only spoke French. And can you explain a little bit of the history of Mauritius? I remember when we were having a conversation a couple of months ago, you told me, all of the layers of history within the country, which were really fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, sure. So um, I think the island was first discovered by the Arabs in 
maybe in the 11th century or something like this. I'm not so sure about this, but then it was like briefly discovered and then they basically didn't live or didn't settle at all. And then um, it was also by the Portuguese. The Portuguese came um, at the beginning of the 17th century, but basically they maybe spent a few months there and then they left. And it was the Dutch actually who came in the 17th century and they started really to colonize the island. And they started also to exploit the island. They started to bring slaves basically to, to work on the island, to, to plant sugarcane and to make roads and everything. And then they also left the island. Um, and then the, the French came during the 18th century and they stayed almost a century and they also they brought a lot of slaves from africa usually madagascar mozambique uh, and other countries and they also did um, plant a lot of sugarcane and they basically they, they are mainly responsible for the de deforestation of the island and then the England came and it lasted for almost a century and a half, I think. And then Mauritius became independent in 1968, so when my mother was a child. But your mother is from none of the groups of people that you described so far, right? And what was her story? No, I mean, my mother is from India because India was also an English colony. So the English people, they brought a lot, I mean, lots of people from, from Africa, from Madagascar and Mozambique, but also from India and also from China, actually. Um, and my, the family of my mom from both sides, um, both her dad and her mom were brought from India or came from India, from North India. And what are the main groups of people that are currently living on the island now? So now we have mostly people from India and people like descendants of, of slaves, basically for West slaves. So people from Africa, that you call Creole. And then you still have a bit um, a French English community that tends to be like smaller and smaller, but you still have them. And you have some Chinese. They are also less and less, I think, but you still have them, yes. And within the Indian community, you have people who are Muslim and you have people who are Hindu. And it makes a great difference. I mean, you have to know, my, my mom, for example, is Hindu. And they are quite divided, both communities, I would say. And that's fascinating that you said that there are all these communities and all these divisions, but yet the language that your mother grew up speaking was Creole. Is this a language that is spoken by all of the people on the island? And, and if so, are there differences in the ways in which language is spoken by different people? Um, as far as I know, everybody is speaking Creole and there are no differences between different people. I don't think so. Um, but official languages are French and English, which means that uh, at school, for example, children are taught in English and the government officially, it, it is everything in English. Um, but that's funny because 
somehow maybe in in newspaper for example you can see somehow maybe an article that is written in english and then another article just next to it that is written in french and then you have some quote that is in creole wow. so you ha- really have a free languages and what is your mother and your own connection to india now um i would say that religion is very a very important part of it not to me but to the family of my mom it is but most of them um kept uh, still keeping those tradition and those customs basically um otherwise my mother actually has never been to india but she she's feeling very much indian and she's very proud to have indian roots so to say and she's dreaming to go to india she's always telling me um, that she wants to go there and she wants to go there with me and my sister um and otherwise yes i mean my mom is cooking a lot of indian dishes obviously and yeah she she she's feeling extremely attracted and to india and to the the whole spiritual dimension of india yes and are there any cultural traditions or things from mauritius specifically that have stayed with your family that are separate from indian culture um There are, for example, a few Mauritian dishes. So uh, you have something called rugai. Basically, it's it can be very different, but it could be like maybe fish with tomato with a lot of spices. Mm. Um, and then you have something funny, which is you have basically what's called um, French cake, basically, but they're not at all French. They are like really Mauritius. I mean, in France, you don't have them. So when we, we when we were little, for us, it was basically um, Mauritian, like cakes. And what about kind of traditions and ways of being that you feel from France or Switzerland that have accompanied you that you've maybe noticed while you were studying or living in Germany? Yeah, there are definitely things I I felt very French doing when I was in Germany. Um, it can be food, but it can be also different different attitude. Um, for example, different attitude when when you are when you are in class, when you are to a teacher. Different. Um, you have a very different relationship with your teacher in France and in Germany. I would say. Really? Can you tell me more about that? Um, I would say, in Germany, you feel much more equal to your teacher than in France. And you're much more allowed to speak and to have a point of view, and you're you you feel I mean I felt much more much freer somehow to to give my opinion and to know if that is going to be listened to. And we've talked quite a bit about your mother's family. Can you tell us a little bit about your father's family? Yes, also from my grandfather's side, which means from my father's father's side. Um, It's actually, um, they were from Italy. This is why I'm called De Felice. It's also funny because usually also people, uh, from, from the first question, when you, you, you are asking me where do I come from, because usually people are assuming I'm from Italy, you know, because I have an Italian name. So I'm yes. Nina De Felice. Um, but then I have to tell them, yes, I am actually. So it means my dad ancestors are from Italy and they... 
came to Switzerland uh, in the middle of the um, 18th century, but I don't speak Italian. And this is very frustrating for me not to speak Italian <laughs> because everybody is expecting me to speak Italian. And from my grandmother's side, it's basically, yeah, they are French from Normandy and they are both a very um, Protestant family. Um, I mean, my dad isn't, he's not Protestant, but he grew up in this, um, in those Protestant values, I would say. Um, and this is also something which is completely different from my mom family and also in your attitude how you how you react to people how you connect to people and in the way you are tackling emotions for example uh, right my mom is so direct and uh, she can connect with people so quickly uh, and so wonderfully basically and for my dad he's so much more laid back um and it's just like different education somehow and it's also it's extremely difficult to say um what belongs to the personality or to the character of somebody and what belongs to actually background and you can also you can also do like so many suppositions i mean if my dad was were born in mauritius i mean how different he would have been like as being born in paris and if my mom would have been born in paris and how different would she have been yeah that's Fascinating. Yeah, that's a really fascinating thought. Yeah. And even, you know, for you also, I mean, for for all bicultural people who are born in one of their two parents' countries, the question is, what if I'd been born in the other one? You know, like my my parents actually even tried for a couple of years to relocate to Italy. And what kind of person would I have been if I had gone to school for my entire education in Florence? Probably very different. And are you very connected to your father's family? Yes. I mean, uh, I'm very close to my grandfather. Mm. And I'm very close to some of my cousins. Uh, the families of my dad, we have so many books or so many articles or so many like remaining from this all this old French Swiss family, Italian family, mm. you know. And from the family of my mom, we have nothing. Uh, and this is also something very very important to me because we have um we have a few um a few things we know from my um maybe from my great grandparents from my grandparents but more than this we don't have anything because nothing was written nothing was kept somehow and i can go i can go to my um to my grandfather's house from the from my dad's side and you still have all those books and all those school books and all those uh, pictures and they are still there you know since 200 years ago also because for my grandfather it's very like family and family heritage is very very important so everything is there and when i go to mauritius and you don't have anything of it. maybe i have a few pictures from my mom when she was a kid and and that's it wow and what are some of the things when you were kind of going between your father's culture and your mother's culture that were the most striking in terms of differences, in terms of ways in which you kind of had to switch your brain and the way you function um, if you were maybe going to Mauritius or or going home to, to your father's family? I would say it's mostly very different mindsets. For example, in Mauritius, you have to fight to have a place in, your, in the society. 
you have to fight to go to school, you have to to study, you have to to have to get diplomas, and you have to get a good job, and nobody is going to help you except me, maybe your immediate family. And in the French society or in the French um, mindset, you can much more. I mean, you have basic rights. If you understand what I'm mean. completely, completely. Yes. And, and I'm seeing this so much, actually, in Corona times now, um, when certain things get taken away from us for that. I mean, you know, we all have our opinions, but I find that it's not that much in the grand scheme of things for a lot of people. Um, and that really kind of rubs right up against the assumptions that our culture kind of breeds into us from when we're very little kids, which is that we have basic rights. And nobody can take those away from us. And I always think we're very, very lucky and privileged to be able to start out from those assumptions. Yes, completely. And is this kind of fight for finding a place in society what ultimately brought your mother and her siblings to Europe? Yes, of course, because um, they had to study, actually. And then now you have, but then you didn't have any university. In, in Mauritius. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we had to go abroad and going abroad to study, that means going very, very far, basically. So one of my aunts went to Australia, I think. One of my aunts went to India and the rest of them, which means my mom and three of her brothers went to, went to Paris to study. Um, and of course, so my, my mom is coming from quite a modest family. I mean, we didn't have so much money at the beginning. So to send most of your kids like very far abroad to study is really a tremendous affair. Somehow a very tremendous problem. I mean, and basically my grandparents sacrificed everything they had to, to send them abroad to study. So they had to be, um, my mom and her siblings, they had to be very hardworking and they had to, to do everything that they could to, to get diplomas. And, and they did. Most of them ended up like being um, doctors, which is for a family in Mauritius, which is quite astonishing somehow. Yeah. And did any of them decide to go back? Yes. Actually, now most of them are back. And for you, was there ever a period at some point of your life in which it seemed difficult to kind of reconcile these two realities that were so different, both from one another and in some ways from your reality? I would say um, it has been always difficult, even if I wasn't aware of it when I was younger. But it was very difficult what I was saying um, to have to consolize somehow two different mindsets. Um, like from, from one point of view, my mom who wanted us to work very hard um, and to, to be extremely independent in the sense that you don't have, you cannot count on people, you cannot trust people and you have to do it really yourself. And, and the vision of my dad, which is much more you have to you have to understand the society and um, there are bigger problems than yourself, basically. Mm, yeah. And you have to understand how the world is working in order to, in order for you to be a part of it. So this, this was, I think, the main difficulty, yes. 
And I became aware of it not so long ago, maybe a few years ago. And how has your evolution since then continued once you've identified that kind of disconnect or that difficulty? Um, I try to navigate between both, which isn't always an easy thing to do, I would say, um, because I was also... I was also told from the very beginning, I have to work very hard, uh, but it's not something I, I wanted to do, obviously, when you're a child and when you're a teenager. So I resented this quite a lot. And now I'm trying to and try to understand it, but I'm also trying to find myself, obviously. And I'm, I'm telling myself it's not something I want to do, um, maybe. And it's also okay. And I don't, I try not to feel guilty about it. You know, all of these people who have come before us, who have given everything to sacrifice for their children, the irony in some way is that, you know, at some point, I guess everyone would want to, at a certain point in the family tree, to arrive at a generation that can really enjoy all the fruits of this labor. And I think sometimes it's it can be hard to be kind of that generation that can enjoy those fruits because it's a double-edged sword that you kind of ask yourself why you didn't have to go through what your parents went through. And I remember speaking with someone when I was in my studies who came from a country that that is not wealthy. Um, and I remember saying to her that I, I felt bad because you know, she had to work from a very, very young age in order to be able to support herself during her studies. And I didn't because my parents supported me. Um, and I said to her, you know, like, I feel bad about the situation and, I, and I, I feel like I should help you. And and she said, no, no, look, your parents worked really, really hard so that you could enjoy what you have now. I'm going to work really, really hard for my children and I want them to enjoy what I've prepared for them. So and, and I thought that was a really beautiful thought. Yes, and it's also very sad maybe to think that your parents maybe sacrificed their lives to to make you happy or to make you comfortable at least. Yes. 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 And you have also a sister, right? A younger sister? I or? have a younger sister, yes. And how has it been for both of you? Did did you you both grew up together or is there a big age difference? No, we both grew up very much together. She's only two years younger than I. So we were very close and we also we were also extremely close because we didn't go to school when we were kids. Were you homeschooled? Yeah, we were homeschooled, exactly. Wow. This is a pretty rare thing, right, in France? It is, yes, it is quite a rare thing. Um, it it was because I started actually school. I started going to primary school and I could already read and write because my mother taught me how to read and write when I was very, very young. So I could do this. So I skipped classes. Um, and when you're skipping classes, when you're very young, you're with children that are maybe like two or three years older than you. And you're when you're four or five or six, it's a huge difference. So, so it didn't go well for me at school. So I went one year and then my parents decided to stop. Uh, wow. Okay. That's, that's fascinating. You know, my mother actually had a similar situation when she was younger. She was, she skipped a grade and, and she hated it. And what she hated the most was puberty. 
um, when everyone else was going through puberty and she was still a kid. So she actually, and at that time it wasn't a problem, but she stopped school when she was 13 or 14 for a year and she went back with people who were her age. And for us, she also said, you know, she always said, no, like I, some teachers at one point said, maybe your children. And she said, no, <laughs> because it's it can be really traumatic. I mean, on the one hand, you're getting a great education. But on the other hand, there there are costs associated with always being the little one. It's it's not. Yeah. Yes, I completely understand this. I mean, if I have children, I really also don't want them to skip grades. Um, and I want them really to be normal. And also because very much when I was a kid, I was, um, everyone was telling me was I, I was so gifted and I was so intelligent and I didn't feel that way. I felt completely normal. And so it was difficult to me. And I wanted to say to them like, no, actually I'm not, but it was the, <laughs> no, really, but it was the way I was brought up. Um, and, uh, but I think when you are, when you are younger, you very much want to be like everybody else. Yes. I remember this is um, funny, like I had a friend in my bachelor still, a different friend, um, and she always said, like, I want to be smart. And I said, I want to be stylish. And, it was <laughs> like, cause, and to this day, like, I'm not a stylish person. Um, I never figured out how to be stylish. But like, I wasn't interested in being smart because it was just like, uh, I, I don't know. You want to be normal. That's yeah. <laughs> so I can identify with that. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I remember actually until I was maybe 11 or 12, I, where sometimes where I wanted to go to school actually to be like everybody else. And then, but then I started to really uh, practice piano and do much more music somehow. And then it went away because I was very much involved with music. I'm just pausing the conversation to introduce an excerpt of Nina's wonderful playing. We'll be hearing the fugue of the Prelude and Fugue in C-sharp minor from the Well-Tempered Clavier, Book 2, by Johann Sebastian Bach. Thank you. 
playing the piano. And are you from a musical family? I'm not at all from a musical family. I mean, my dad is a big classical music and music, but mostly classical music amateur. But he never played really himself. Um, I started the piano basically because my mom wanted me to play. So, and we had a piano at home and I was playing already on it, I guess, a bit. And so I started when I was five, I started playing the piano, yes. And I started to have, to have lessons. And then I did one year private lessons. And then I went to the music, music school in Geneva. I see. I see. So one of the main connections to Geneva also had to do with music and with being tapping into this international community. Absolutely. Yes. From the very, very, very beginning, it was music. Wow. And you said that your sister was also playing music with you. She was playing the violin and singing as well? Yes. So when I started piano, she started the violin, actually. And also, I also started playing violin. Actually, until I was maybe 12 or 13, and then I stopped because it's, I was an awful violin player. <laughs> I was really an awful violinist. Um, but I both played uh, the trenchman for a few years, and my sister also played piano a bit, and then she also stopped and decided to focus on the violin. I see. And I remember that you told me that you started a festival together. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, yes, we we founded a festival, me, my sister, and a cousin of ours. We started this three years ago, and um, the festival is where my grandfather, actually my grandparents have, from my father's side, they have their, a family house, so it's in the center of France, in a small village, once more. I mean, not so small, but still a village. Um, and they started, and we started the festival three years ago, um, 2020, we couldn't do it because of Corona, like most festivals. But we've been doing like three, three editions from now on. Yeah. And um, I know that there's another project that you've been working on recently called An Artist's Blog. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So the Artist's Blog is uh, a project that I started. Me and my friend, my, a very, very good friend of mine, um, pianist Natalia Milstein. And she actually had the idea during the lockdown and she was in France and was also in France. And basically we could do nothing except playing piano and stay locked in our houses the whole day. <laughs> yes. So um, she came with this idea to collect um, writings about, uh, from musicians about music. And um, it can be about a piece of music. It can be about um, a philosophical thoughts about music. It can be about anything else, uh, as long as it's music related. And um, we decided to collect those texts and to put them on a blog, so on a website. And and it's getting not so bad. I mean, we have some text. Um, and it's very interesting to see what musicians are thinking about music because usually musicians are not writing so much about music. I mean, many of them are writing, but not, not much of it is published. So, yes, it's very exciting for, for both of us. And I hope we're going to be able to 
to develop this furthermore. And have you actually ever performed in Mauritius? And what was that experience like? Yes, I performed one time there. Um, I gave a piano recital and it was actually extremely interesting because I went actually to the music school, to one music school next to my where my grandmother lived uh, I because I wanted a place to practice. And um, they said yes, and they asked me if I could give a concert. So wow. I gave a concert. And I remember it was quite a few years ago. I was then 17 or 16 or 17. But I do remember... Uh, the reaction of the audience that is was extremely warm somehow and it was for most of them i guess it was music they never heard about uh, um, but i do remember it, they were extremely enthusiastic yes and oh and actually something i wanted to say maybe about it um i remember before the concert uh, a journalist came and to give to ask me to do a, to do an interview with her and I remember one of the first uh, one of the first question was um, so I know you're partly French and Swiss, but your mom is from Mauritius. And the first question was, but she's from Mauritius, but she's what? I mean, she's uh, Creole, or she's like Hindu, or she's what is she? And I do remember by then I wasn't so aware of the different tension between Mauritians, but I do remember it really struck me uh, that she's not Mauritian, but she's really something in Mauritius. I was struck while you were describing earlier in this conversation how recent the whole history is. It's very, very short. And if we think in terms of human generations, it's not so many. Yeah, No, it's not so many. And this is, this is why also it's still very much a divided country, I would say. Uh, I'm not a historian and I cannot speak for every Mauritians, of course not. Um, but I would say what you feel, what I felt anyway, when I went there, it's, it's still very divided. Um, and um, somehow it's a bit controversial because at the same time, you have people that are extremely generous and it's a very community. You feel this kind of direct understanding and direct I would say brotherhood from everybody, even if you don't know them. Um, I, and at the same time, you still have very much um, separate livings or separate lives, I would say. Because usually when you talk to somebody from Mauritius, I'm a Mauritian peel, you can really, I mean, you get along almost immediately, you know. And this is somehow, this is something you don't have with um, West European no, you need a bit of time to get to know each other. You have much more a cautious approach. No? Definitely. And and this you don't have in Mauritius. This is great because you can laugh with, with everybody like instantly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it it it's, it is still very much uh, yes divided. I would say. Can you explain a little bit about the political situation? In Mauritius right now? Yes. Um, actually, there was a major event uh, this summer in July. I don't know if you heard about it, um, but when a, a ship was wrecked um, 
Bashaw of Mauritius. And uh, it ended up with a massive oil spill. So I think it made the headlines for a day or two in the international world. And then it disappeared again, like most things in Mauritius. Um, but the oil spill didn't, didn't disappear. It stayed. Yeah. And, um, and because of this, um, there were massive protests. And there are still are massive protests um, from the population protesting against the government, against all the corruption. And so it's a bit of a turmoil right now. Uh, you have lots of protests and you have um, an extreme and a really big gap, I would say, be uh, between the population and uh, the government. Yes. And why? one thing I would like to talk about, actually, it's um, this idea that Mauritius is a dream island, you know, that... Um, but it irritates me a lot. But everybody is thinking like this because um, everybody here in Europe basically sees Mauritius as a dream island, like you just the, the sand and the sea and the sun and coconuts. And you just have, <laughs> but no, really. And you just yeah. go there to go on the beach and maybe to enjoy um, doing nothing and lying on the beach the whole day. And I think it's a very distorted image of Mauritius that people are getting. And somehow I would like to change this, uh, to tell people that it's not like this, that we also have problems, but we also have challenges. And um, in Mauritius, you have a huge um, ecological problem. But uh, I think um, only 2%, I've read this somewhere, only 2% of the original forest is still there. <gasps> Yeah, oh. and otherwise it was completely wiped out to plant sugarcane and to build roads and to build everything. Um, and I think it's very, it's a very important problem, and nobody talks about it. Yeah. And the other thing is that a lot of times those people who go there to do nothing and to just lie on the beach, it's not only that they're blind to the problem, but they're also contributing to the problem. Of course, of course, yeah. But also, I think what's also a big problem there is um, that as it was a colonized country, uh, mainly by French and English, uh, the French and the English, um, there is this idea that to be um, the best possible country, you have to do like the European countries, which means, um, and I think this is, Maybe the case for most colonized countries, you know, uh, or country who has been colonized and they are like recently independent. But you have to to have uh, also the best um, roads. You have to have also the best. Um, you have to be like them, basically. Um, and also, it's very two edges, yeah, double edges, you know, because at the same time, the Mauritian are extremely proud of what they are. You know, um, they are extremely proud to be from Mauritius and to be from this country. And at the same time, they want um, maybe and maybe it's completely unconscious, but I feel this very strongly that the model somehow is uh, is our European countries. Yeah, or the standard point of reference. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
And I realized there was one question that I wanted to ask, but I didn't quite get to while we were talking about music, which is, I'm curious about, um, you said that there's a strong work ethic coming from your family culture. And we both know that there is a strong work ethic equally in the classical music profession and world just because, well, I guess without a strong work ethic, it wouldn't really be possible in today's world to continue playing pieces of music that were written 200 years ago. Like, you know, we need to be very motivated by ourselves. I'd yes, say. yes. Um, by each other, by the community and by ourselves. We don't count hours. We have none of us have ever been paid um, according to how many hours we practice. That's just completely out the window. I mean, it's a completely different operating scheme from many other professions. That's so true. Yes. <laughs> but and so I'm wondering, how has it been for you to kind of integrate these different kinds of work ethics and, and drives and motivations with the love of music itself and the love of, of the music that you're performing and working on? I would say for me, it wasn't a problem because, because exactly, because I was brought up like this. So for me, it was completely natural to work. And I, I, and I, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I could spend really hours in front of a piano and it never felt like work, like working. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, because for me, it was completely, I mean, I just loved doing this. I mean, maybe it, it's becoming now harder now that I'm an adult, you know, <laughs> really to have to work. Especially when I have concerts, it's not a problem. But when I don't have so many, like, for example, during the lockdown, uh, I think like many of us, I was telling myself, I want to learn so much repertoire. And of course, I haven't, I haven't done like half of it. Mm. But for uh, work ethic also, um, I think something we haven't discussed about it, but I am still um, also studying mathematics. I mean, I, I have a degree. I have a master's degree in mathematics. And I, and I did both at the same time. I mean, music university and mathematics university. Wow. Um, and so you have to be quite organized to do this. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Mm. But I think there are, both, there are both fields where you have to work a lot alone, um, especially when you're a pianist, you know, because when you are, I don't know, cellist or violinist, you can still play, you play much more time music yes. and you play lots of orchestras and everything. But when you're a pianist, you're very much alone. Yeah. And when you're studying mathematics, it's also a field where you have to just sit uh, at a table and just try to think if you can. And I think it's, it's not by chance, but I've picked up those two um, subjects somehow. Wow. And how did those studies look like, both in terms of where did you complete them and how were you able to do that in parallel with music? And also the other part of that, how much of a community of friends and colleagues did you develop within the world of mathematics? Or was it mostly um, within the world of music that you had your, your socializing and friend groups? I was studying mathematics um, as remote learning. Um, so basically I was and I still am involved in a university, in a French university in Paris. Mm. But I just went there just to take the exams. Uh, and otherwise I was staying by myself. Um, and it also it was also very clear to me the whole time that um, my main activity is music. Um, in mathematics, it was more something I could do 
when I would have time. And what was your specialization within your master's degree? It was complex analytics. Was that uh, complex? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, It sounds complicated. (laughs) I mean, my bachelor, it was fine. Um, I could more or less not do so much and then before the exam study and it went more or less well for master it was much more complicated i would say for this you really have to study and i was struggling struggling a lot more and if you have let's say you have some friends who are thinking about having children and they're from two different cultures as your parents are is there any advice that you would have for them just in terms of what they can be looking out for, you know, be aware of or what they can prepare for or, you know, just anything that that comes out of your own life and your own experiences that you'd like to pass along? I mean, it won't be an advice, I think, because I don't like giving advices. Um, But I would say... um, it's very important to be aware um, of the, how much your culture or your background, let's say, more than your culture, is has uh, an influence about on you. Yeah, and um, how those different cultures or different backgrounds from two two people, two parents, how how it can be. Um, difficult for the child and mostly it's not you know it's not because you don't eat the same food I mean this is great because you have so many different foods that mm. taste you know <laughs> it's more how you how you see your life differently and how you see how are your ambitions different and um, how you see the society and the, the place the role you have in the society how it can be different um, I think this is more more something like this, and to try to show like the children that um, many things are possible and many different things are possible. This is extremely diverse. Like now, it sounds like very cliche, but <laughs> yeah. no. But I understand what you mean that many different things are okay, and I think you know, especially we're having this conversation on November third, two thousand and twenty. Yes, uh, which is. <laughs> election day in the United States. And, you know, I think that I'm always reminded that we have to keep on making clear that being different is all right and having different realities is all right. And that's part of the process. So I think, you know, it can be cliche or not, but it's really important. So thank you very much. That's really, really wonderful closing thought if not advice. Uh, you're right. You're right. You know, each person's situation is different. So no need to, to, you know, explain anything to anyone. But awareness is extremely important. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So on that note, have a great evening. Thank you, Nina. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalie. Bye. The Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team. Thank you to Gilvenas Brazauskas and to Jessamine Jones. If you'd like to get involved, you can send us a message at theextrahalf at gmail.com, support us at patreon.com slash theextrahalf, rate and review the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram.
Next week, we'll be speaking with Luisa Weiss, creator of The Wednesday Chef and author of My Berlin Kitchen and Classic German Baking. Luisa has a multifaceted career as a food blogger, translator, author, and chef. Her parents are from Italy and the United States, and she lives in Berlin with her family. We have a fascinating conversation about how food can be a powerful constant in a childhood and life characterized by change. You can find us next Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Natanya Hoffman. You've been listening to The Extra Half. Take care. Until next time. Thank you.